Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. From fighting gender inequality with power poses to defeating racism with unconscious bias tests, psychologists are not shy when it comes to the claims that they make about their field's ability to solve some society's thorniest problems. In his new book, Quick Fix, the American journalist Jesse Single exposes much of these claims as bunk that doesn't stand up to close scrutiny. In this podcast, the critic's US editor Oliver Wiseman spoke to Jesse about his new book, how bad ideas spread so easily, and why the psychological cures to our social ills should be taken with a spoonful of salt. Jesse, I wanted to start by asking you about. Um, you know something you talk about in the introduction of this book, which is which is where the idea came from, um, and it was it was I think your work as a as a science journalist um, that led you to you know down this road of, of treating psychology with a bit more skepticism. So so why don't we start there? Yeah. Um, uh, so basically, I was editing a social science website at New York Magazine from. 2014 to 2017, uh, part of that time I, I was a writer, I, I switched roles, but I noticed that university press offices were just sort of firehosing us with all these very excited seeming findings or excite, exciting seeming findings. And, you know, when, when you'd actually look into what they were claiming, there was often less there than meets the eye. I think one of the most egregious examples of that was the implicit association test, which is this test that uh, supposedly reveals one's uh, innermost unconscious bias and just sort of, um, you know, took over the diversity training world, at least in the States. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's go right in then to the, to IAT, because I guess that's maybe the most kind of current, um, most politically salient sort of uh, issue in the book which uh, maybe explain for listeners what what this test is maybe some of them have done it and, and they'll be familiar with it but but explain for me what it is first and also a bit of if you can about the about the debate around it why, why the science doesn't necessarily add up yeah so the idea is you sit down at a computer and you hit uh you can anyone can go to harvard's uh project implicit website you take this test, you hit I if you see a good word or a white face, you hit E if you see a bad word or a black face, and then it switches those up and, and it sort of measures your reaction time with this algorithm. And it spits out a score that supposedly reveals whether you have an unconscious preference for white versus black faces. And the claim for, you know, since the test was unveiled in 1998 is that this could sort of predict your unconsciously racist behavior, which was a very provocative claim because this is just a, a brief computer exercise. Mm -hmm. The problem is, or I should say the problems are, because there's a lot of problems with this test, it, it doesn't seem to actually really predict behavior, maybe a little bit at the margins. There's also, there are also some major questions over whether it's actually measuring something that could be fairly called uh, implicit bias versus familiarity with stereotypes or familiarity with racism. So this is an example of a, of a test that really took over the national conversation about race and on the basis of some very strong specific claims. And then 20 years later, most of those claims have proven false. So I think it's a striking example of how the effective marketing of scientific ideas can, can really uh, trample the evidence. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the, as you go in the book through various examples of this, one common thread is um, 
these ideas um, and these kind of quack fixes and, and so on that kind of become not just become mainstream become become wildly popular um, before anyone's really kind of looked into the the, the science behind it or, or already tested it um, you know especially um, rigorously and I don't know the kind of layman in me would expect it to be the other way around right you'd think that the stuff you're getting in your diversity awareness class at Starbucks or whatever is the you know the most mainstream least contested kind of most firmly established science out there so so how is that how has that happened what's the what's the you know who's to blame for, for, the, for the way in which these kind of far from proven theories kind of bubble up and become mainstream yeah I mean I think <clears throat> excuse me I think part of it is that uh, scientists do just overclaim sometimes yeah. I mean there's a lot of incentives these days you want to get that TED talk that book deal uh, scientists themselves sometimes make honest mistakes in that there's a lot of sort of um, methodological shortcuts you can take maybe without realizing it, especially for researchers who aren't that, um, you know, good, good with quant stuff. There's a lot of social psychologists in particular who, who for a long time were making sort of basic statistical mistakes without realizing it. Uh, but, but perhaps the biggest thing here is just the way science is marketed and packaged and sold to, you know, Starbucks. For example, I mean, if you're the, the HR manager at a company and you need to do something about diversity and you have this offering being sold to you by Harvard University, you know, you're, you're not going to dig that deep into it. This mm -hmm. is just one item on a very long list of things you need to do. So I, I, don't, I don't really blame sort of um, the professional types who adopt these trainings and these ideas. I can see why they're under a lot of pressure, but I think that's how some of these ideas can spread wider than they would have otherwise. Right. And then, but, and then there's some, you know, there is a kind of more, there's a sort of spectrum, at least like the impression I get from your book is there's a spectrum of, you know, scientists who kind of maybe overhype their claims a little bit in the press release, um, which maybe you can forgive uh, just about. Uh, and, but then there, are, then there are types who do, you know, who really are just trawling for kind of headline grabbing findings, right? Like this, I mean, maybe explain what p-hacking is, but that seems to me to be something where, that seems to be quite a cynical exercise, basically. Yeah, I mean, p-hacking is basically if you if you include or exclude uh, trials. I mean, if you if you flip a coin a bunch of times, but then you just pretend you only flipped it so many times, you might get statistical patterns you wouldn't otherwise. Mm -hmm. is, is one of those things where if you if you talk to sort of the most credible researchers. Um, uh, researchers didn't understand this was bad or that it could lead to false positives, which, which sounds weird in retrospect, but I think like the way science was done in 2010, even just a decade ago, uh, statistics are weird and, and they're difficult and you can fool yourself into thinking you found something you haven't. So, you know, to, to me, the sort of moral question is more what do researchers do when, when people have, found limitations in their work. And in my book, there's a range of responses, some of which are to just double down and to pretend the critiques aren't there. Uh, but other researchers uh, act in a more responsible way and try to pare back their claims. But uh, there's definitely some variety there. T tell me about the power posing study. I think that was one of the p-hacking ones in the book. Yeah, power posing is this idea that if you sort of stand, uh, you know, with your hands on your hips like Wonder Woman or, or adopt other, uh, they're called expansive poses, it makes you feel more powerful and, and can cause sort of neurological changes and, and make you feel, um, you know, do better negotiation settings mm -hmm. and stuff like this. And 
a woman named Amy Cuddy at Harvard became, you know, the, the power posing guru. And she sold a book and a TED talk on this basis. And it, it really got tied into America's conversation about feminism, mm-hmm. sort of lean in feminism, this idea that women need to really take their rightful place in the workplace. Um, so I, I partly talk about both the limitations of that entire model and, you know, just the fact that uh, one of Cuddy's co-authors on the first power posing study, Dana Carney at UC Berkeley, she said, I don't think this effective is real. I, I think we p-hacked it. So there's just basically almost no evidence to support the, these pretty strong claims she was making that sort of made her an academic superstar. And again, like you say, the, the, the lack of evidence doesn't seem to stop the, the rise of, of the idea, right? Like it, it, I think the, the power posing kind of crept into kind of lean in uh, feminist stuff and the TED talk was watched by kind of tens of millions of people and and you know this became a very popular idea taken it was it was taken more seriously than it ever, ever should have been yeah I think that's true and and you know I think it's because the argument I make throughout the book is if you actually want to solve problems like gender gaps in the workplace they're they're horribly complicated and mm-hmm. if you have someone pop up and say well we can make some progress just by standing with your hands on your hips people get seduced by that pretty easily mm-hmm. yeah so so that's what i want to say what you do very well in the book i think is you marry this the kind of problems with the science and the, uh, how, how this research is conducted with the kind of i guess political culture in which these are these ideas kind of catch fire right so so there's this, and I think one of the one of the persistent themes is is, is your, your people like these ideas because there's no they kind of they kind of short circuit any difficult trade offs, right? Like I don't need to worry about um, X, Y, and Z in our economic policy or or whatever uh, on race if I can just if I can just say well we've given everyone training and 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 if if white people just like do the work you know mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah. These ideas have a way of sort of sucking up all the oxygen in the room. And and I posit this, uh, basically a worldview that I call prime world, which is that, right. you know, you can make a lot of progress solving these problems by uh, addressing people's biases or their primes. Primes are just sort of, it's this idea that these subtle things we encounter in our environment can have major unconscious effects on our behavior. You know, if we could just tweak people a little bit and improve these problems, that'd be nice, but it's not very realistic. And it's also, it's also, it strikes me as, and maybe you're just being too, too nice uh, to your fellow Americans here, but in the book, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a trend that can only exist in an extremely narcissistic society, right? Because essentially all these things are basically saying to people, um, it's, you know, basically you just change the way you think or act, you know, whether that's standing in a Wonder Woman stance or doing, um, you know, re- reading uh, Robin D'Angelo book about 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 race, um, and and that's how we check. That's how we change these problems. You know, you, it's within your power to change to change these problems. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's narcissism and and individualism, and you know, I I just <clears throat> excuse me. In the book, I tie it into the fact that we have a pretty dysfunctional political culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, other some of our close allies can maybe compete on that front uh, right now. But w- you know, I can understand why, given that we don't seem to accomplish that much through policy, or we haven't in recent decades, people might turn to psychological gurus as like a replacement for that. Um, 
I obviously can't can't prove that it's speculative but but the mm. theory feels right because we we don't have much faith in politics and, and things seem to be all gummed up and dysfunctional so if you can just power pose or, or implicit association test your way out of these problems that'd be nice and on the on the implicit association test is there any i mean obviously it's you know there is a sort of backlash in the sense that it's very politically controversial and um you know you're writing your book about it here we are talking about it but is there a sense with that one of the kind of corporate world's embrace of it sort of softening in any way? I mean, is there, is there, is there a sense out there that these things, you know, we got a bit carried away with these, these things and actually that this isn't the solution to this problem? You know, you, you see some backlash, but I, this seems like one of those zombie ideas that's just, just shambling along. I, mean, I just see it referenced so much in the national conversation about race um, I think some people are catching on that there's there's less there than meets the eye, but you know there was just a, a recent uh, I forget if it was Good Morning America, or one of the other big morning shows, you know, broadcast to hundreds of millions of people that uh, treated the idea with with complete credulity, and this is years after anyone should do that. So to me, it still seems to be going strong, unfortunately. And on and on the, on on race, it's 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 a paradox, isn't it? Because in the book, you argue, you know, on the one hand, the most prominent voices on race in America today, and indeed the the current administration and others, um, you know, race racism is systemic. We're told it's 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 essential to everything about America. It's 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 uh, you know, it's such a fundamental dynamic force that defines everything around us. Um, on the one hand we're told that and on the other just to go back you know to go back to the training point on the other that problem is solved by us all taking these tests and and and, and changing changing our our bias and as, as though the as though it's not something sort of much more deep much more you know even if you think if you if you if you, if you accept that it's a huge problem it seems like a very shallow answer to the problem to, to say we could just do a, a kind of google survey and and, and we'll solve it yeah, it's this weird sort of uh, clash between the idea that that racism is structural, which, you know, I, I believe in, I could quibble with the specifics, but then all the solutions really do seem to be individual. It seems to be attend to training, take an implicit association test. And, you know, it could be that um, part of the reason for the popularity of these ideas is they don't really demand much in the way of, of policy or redistribution or anything else you're, you're putting a lot of weight on individuals and assuming that if you could change individual attitudes or behavior that would solve the problem which i, I just think is very um i don't know unlikely yeah and in uh, i want to talk about the, the pandemic briefly your um you know behavioral science has been kind of a big part of how you, the discussion of, of of how to communicate to people the risks of covid what behaviors to encourage and so on and i, I wondered if what your thoughts were on observing that kind of psychology, you know, the, the, the psychology industry's role in uh, any of that, whether, whether, whether you noticed anything there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's been very much a mixed bag. Um, uh -huh. I, my book actually ends with a paper, some well-respected psychologists wrote saying that psych psychological science is in such a sorry state right now. We don't, we haven't really earned a seat at the, COVID policymaking table. Mm -hmm. um, I think social psychology at its best can definitely offer us some insight, sort of the power of norms, uh, local social norms in shaping behavior uh, could be useful. There's, there's nuggets here and there I'd pluck out, but, but overall, 
you know, we're, we're at a point where there's only something like a 50% chance that the average psychological study will replicate. Like you mm -hmm. try to, you try to recreate it and you might very well might not get anything. So how can a science in that sort of situation offer us all that much on such a complicated and urgent subject? Well, I'm glad you brought up um, the replication crisis. Um, and I mean, the authors of that paper certainly sound fairly, um, you know, down to earth about, or, you know, realistic about the, the health of their, um, their, their speciality. But, but is there any, what I'm curious more broadly as to whether there's a sense of, you know, that there's a sort of reckoning there, whether, whether psychology is like learning the right lessons, whether these studies are getting better, whether science journalists are, you know, less gullible than they were 10 years ago. Um, what's your, what's your, what's your view on that? I have more faith that, um, psychology researchers are sort of are doing better and learning their lessons there's been like uh -huh. pretty much a, a revolution at least among some folks in how they practice psychology my book goes into some of the specifics mm. there journalists I, I have less faith just because our industry is collapsing and it's, it's less and less common to have like a science reporter who really has the time to dig closely into studies and read them carefully and develop expertise there's more and more clickbait. So I, you know, there, there's definitely some good science reporters, including reporters on the replication crisis itself, but I'm, mm -hmm. I continue to be very worried about science communication. Um, and in, in the book, you know, let's end on a slightly more optimistic note. Give, give, us a, give us an example of, you know, you mentioned the racial bias one as a sort of zombie idea that you think is gonna stay with us for, for a long time. Uh, even though the science behind it's a bit dicey. What's an example of one where, or is there an example of one where people, people take, the, take the study to task, they, they realize it doesn't add up and, you know, society correctly kind of adjusts and forgets about, about that bad idea? Yeah, my, so there was this um, very exciting era, you know, for maybe the, the 90s to the aughts of social priming studies. These are studies which suggest like if you, if you, someone flashes a word like wrinkled or you see the word wrinkled, you'll walk slower. Like these subtle primes will have a profound impact on your behavior. And they got really crazy. Uh, some of these studies, that's an area where, where they've, they've done such a, the replication crisis has been so severe and they're so clearly shoddy studies. My sense is social psychology has basically sort of abandoned that subfield. Um, I could be overstating that slightly, but it's definitely the case that in 2021, there's less excitement about social priming than there was uh, a decade ago. And, and that's as it should be. So that, that offers to me some hope that, um, you know, science can self-correct, which is what science is supposed to do. Right. And, and so, I mean, if it sounds like you're, you're describing, a, you're painting a picture of psychology as a, as a sort of, how, it's trying to get its house in order as a, as a discipline. Um, but what, I mean, you know, while it does, while it does that, I mean, should we should we be paying it any attention? I mean, I mean, why should we be listening to any of these any of these studies or or any of the reports of the studies in newspapers? I mean, as a kind of if someone's read your book or wants to read your book and they want to then be a more sort of critical um, thinker and and consumer of sort of news about this stuff and and TED talks and and so on, you know, is the best approach maybe just to ignore it all for the for for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't want psychologists to be sidelined. The best psychologists do good work. But I would say 
if some new surprising one-off study is getting headlines, you should probably ignore those headlines until someone can replicate that study or provide more evidence. There've been so many examples of, of these overheated claims fizzling out that, um, yeah, I just think uh, science consumers need to be very careful. Okay, well, Jesse, on that uh, skeptical um, health, uh, health <laughs> warning, I, I think we should, we should leave it there. So, so thanks, thanks a lot for talking to us. Thanks for having me up. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.